This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our special presentation on the life of the most famous magician and illusionist of all time. Jesse Edwards brings us the story of the great Harry Houdini. We begin the story of Harry Houdini, the most famous magician the world has ever known night of October 31st, 1936, on the rooftop of the Nickenbacher Hotel in Hollywood, California, ten years to the day after Houdini died on Halloween of 1926. Tonight, we are in the very heart of glamorous Hollywood that Houdini loved so well. He lived here. He worked here. Houdini loved Hollywood. It's the Houdini night. With the spotlight of the public on Houdini. With the whole world paused to see or hear Houdini step on this side of the curtain. The great Houdini had made a pact with his wife Bess that he would make every attempt to communicate with her as a spirit from beyond the grave after he was dead. So, every year, on Halloween... The widow of Harry Houdini held a seance for him on the night of his departure for the next 10 years without ever making contact. In this, the 10th and final official seance for Harry Houdini, gold invitations were sent to some 300 guests and reporters. Lights as far away as New York were dimmed and one minute of silence was observed as the ceremony began in prayer. Now let us bow our heads in meditation and prayer. O thou master mind of the universe, please let the spirit of understanding descend upon us that are gathered here in the inner circle tonight. We are each in his own way seekers after truth, and we offer our grateful thanks to thee. Guide us, please. Amen. A table with Houdini's handcuffs was set near the edge of the roof, with the Hollywood sign as the prominent dramatic backdrop lit up in the distance of the Halloween night. Now, the final plea for the great Houdini to appear in spirit form. Oh, thou disembodied spirits, those of you that have grown old in the mysterious laws of spirit land, we greet thee. It is the spirit of Houdini we wish to contact. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? Please manifest yourself in any way possible. Take from this earnest gathering any strength that may be necessary for you to use. Take any vital thing from us that you may need to enable you to carry out your promise of years ago. We have waited, Houdini, oh so long. Never have you been able to present the evidence you promised. And now, this is a night of night. The world is listening. Harry, your world, your audience, we are crying to high heaven, to the powers that be. We are crying in one mighty magnetic voice from every corner of the earth and the hearts and minds of the multitudes are centered here tonight. We want the evidence, the truth, in the name of humanity and love, if there is communication from the great beyond, come through with the evidence. Yet again, like ten times before, Houdini did not come through from the other side. His wife, Bess, had no other choice but to concede. Mrs. Houdini, the 
hour has passed. The ten years are up. Have you reached a decision? Yes. Houdini did not come through. My last hope is God. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. After faithfully following through the ten-year Houdini compact, using every type, medium, and theos, it is now my personal and positive belief that spirit communication in any form is impossible. I do not believe that ghosts or spirits exist. The Houdini Shrine has burned for ten years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. For 10 years, Best presided over these well-publicized seances. Though she stopped participating in 1938, not a single Halloween has passed since without an official Houdini seance held by magicians somewhere in the world as homage to the great Houdini. Which is somewhat ironic, considering that Harry Houdini was well-known for his efforts to debunk spiritualist mediums and psychics. He even wrote a book about it called A Magician Among the Spirits. He was a member of the Scientific American Committee offering cash prizes to anyone who could demonstrate psychic abilities under the scrutiny of scientific observers. Houdini would debunk mediums by wearing elaborate disguises and infiltrating seances where tricks of the trade could easily be exposed by one with such knowledge and illusions as Houdini possessed. But where did Houdini obtain this knowledge of illusion? And what drove him to such great lengths in his efforts to disprove psychics, mediums, and spiritualists? He was born in Budapest, Hungary, March 24, 1874, as Eric Weiss, the son of a rabbi and one of seven children. His family immigrated to the United States and settled in Wisconsin. Eric began to pursue an interest in magic, as his stage name, Eric Weiss, became Harry Houdini by adding an I to the last name of his idol, French magician Robert Houdin. Legend has it that young Houdini was apprenticed to a locksmith where he learned to assemble and take apart locks with his eyes closed. At 17 years old, Harry Houdini left his family to pursue his career in magic. Assisted by his little brother Theodore, Houdini began appearing in New York beer halls, theaters, museums, platforms next to snake charmers, fire eaters, and human oddities. They traveled as far west as Chicago, where the brothers Houdini did quite well during the 1893 World's Fair. In 1894, while performing at Coney Island in Brooklyn, New York, Houdini met a performer named Bess, and they were married quickly before she joined him on stage to become the husband-wife act known as the Houdinis. For the rest of Harry's career, Bess worked as his stage assistant. Yet, Houdini began 1899 adrift and discouraged. He hadn't made much of a name for himself and was trying to make a living by doing card tricks and escaping from handcuffs. He was also dead broke. A year earlier, he had attempted to sell his entire act. But there were no takers. When we come back, the great Houdini finds success. Right here on Our American Stories.
We continue the story of the great Harry Houdini, who at this point had found moderate success, but hadn't yet become famous. His big break came in 1899 when he met manager Martin Beck in St. Paul, Minnesota, who convinced Houdini to concentrate on his escape acts. He then toured Europe, and his show was an immediate success. His salary rose to $300 per week. With his newfound wealth, he purchased a dress said to have been made for Queen Victoria. He then arranged for a grand reception where he presented his mother in the dress to all of their relatives. Houdini said it was the happiest day of his life. In 1904, he returned to the United States and bought a house for $25,000 in New York City. Harry Houdini had arrived, but his popularity was just beginning. Joshua Jay is a successful magician and respected Harry Houdini expert who joins us from the Contemporary Jewish Museum of San Francisco. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Houdini in a metaphorical sense. Who is Houdini? Houdini is five foot three. He's considered at this time period an outsider, Hungarian. He's an immigrant at a time when more immigrants were coming into the country than ever before. He's a minority, he's Jewish. So already you have a lot of things that people in that time viewed as stacked against you. He was an outsider. He wasn't thought of as American. And yet, somehow, he became America's first superstar. And he really was. That's not a, really even a debatable statement. He was America's first superstar because although there were people who were famous actors on the stage and later in silent pictures, they were famous for portraying other people, other powerful people. Houdini was famous for who he was. And who was he? He's this small Jewish immigrant, but chains can't hold him. He can escape from anything. That's an unbelievable metaphor given the time period. This isn't a time when most people are feeling repressed. Most people are feeling like there's a ceiling to how high they can rise. Here's a man without education, without any money. It's the ultimate rags to riches story. From 1907 and throughout 1910, Houdini performed with great success in the United States. He freed himself from jails, handcuffs, chains, ropes, and straitjackets, often while hanging from a rope inside of a street audience or out in front of a major newspaper for the extra publicity. Because of imitators, Houdini put his handcuff act behind him in 1908 and began escaping from a locked, water-filled milk can. Here again is Joshua Jay. Houdini was largely known for his escapes, but truthfully, most of his escapes were publicity stunts. They were done outside in harbors to get people to come to his magic shows. So this is why he would be seen upside down with a straitjacket or doing underwater escapes, bridge jumps. But in 1908, he had a brilliant idea to bring the major escapes to the stage. And this was the one that he brought. This is the milk can escape. It's an original Houdini illusion, and this is the original milk can. He would go inside the can, so only his head was emerged. And then he would do something brilliant. He would say to everybody in the audience, I have here the biggest stopwatch in the world. And he would bring out a big clock. And he would say, I want all of you to help me warm up my lungs by holding your breath for a minute with me. And he would get everybody in the audience to hold their breath. The timer would start, and he would go submerge himself into the can. Everybody tries to hold their breath. 30 seconds go by, and... They learn it's hard. He comes up after a minute, they kick the can, and, and now it's brilliant, because what has he done? 
He hasn't shown you that what he's doing is impossible like most magicians. He's shown you that what he's doing is difficult and real. And that is a way that everybody, remember, even if there were 3,000 people in the crowd, could understand and identify on a very intimate level the real danger that he was attempting. Here again is magician Joshua Jay with the details on how exactly the milk can illusion worked. So this is how the illusion would work. He would say, after a moment of meditation, I will now hold my breath much longer. And he would resubmerge. Six assistants would place the top on the can and then lock the six padlocks on the side. A small curtain was placed around it. This was to protect the secret of his illusion, which remains a secret to this day. And then the clock would start ticking. After a minute, almost everybody in the audience couldn't hold their breath. After two minutes, the skeptics were scared. At the three minute mark, the theater manager would come out with an ax in his hand, looking very confused like this had never happened before. And of course it happened every night, the same exact way. This is Houdini's brilliance with orchestrating a play and playing with your emotions. At the four minute mark, everybody in the audience was shouting, mercy, mercy for Mr. Houdini. And just as he was about to break open that can with an ax, Houdini would emerge from behind the curtain, soaking wet to thunderous applause. They ate it up, they loved it. Then they'd whisk away the curtain and the padlocks were still locked. It was as if he melted through the side. Now just because this was an illusion, it doesn't mean it wasn't truly dangerous. Joshua Jay describes one event where it cost an imitator everything. A Houdini imitator named Janesta attempted the milk can escape in 1930, four years after Houdini's death. But what Janesta didn't know is that as his crew was unloading the can, they dropped it. Now we don't know how Houdini did it, but we do know that Janesta did it with a trap door lid, a lid that even when locked, you could escape through. When they dented the can, they stopped the method of escape. The trap door wouldn't open. Janesta didn't know this until he was underwater inside the can with the padlocks locked. No way to shout for help, no way to signal what had happened. It took his wife, who was watching the trick from the wings, three minutes before she realized something had gone wrong. She ushered all the assistants in to help unlock the can. But of course, remember, the way the trick is supposed to work, they never have to unlock the padlocks. They couldn't remember which keys went to which locks. So they got mixed up and they lost another precious minute. By the time they unlocked the can, they opened it, Janesta lived only long enough so that they could explain to him how he had been killed. Harry Houdini had a few close calls himself over the years. Being buried alive was one of the most dangerous stunts that the magician ever pulled off. Assistants shackled and covered Houdini with earth six feet deep. Trying to dig his way out, he soon became exhausted and panicked. While calling for help, his hand finally broke the surface of the earth, and he passed out. In his personal diary, Houdini wrote that it was a very dangerous escape and that the weight of the earth is killing. Houdini's daredevil behavior wasn't just for the stage, but very much a part of who he was. In 1909, he became fascinated with aviation and purchased a 60-horsepower French biplane for $5,000. Houdini made his first flight near Hamburg, Germany on November 26, 1909. Just six years after the first flight of the Wright brothers, some reports say that Houdini was the 25th person to ever fly an airplane. 
At a time when air travel was highly experimental, this was truly another death-defying act to add to his repertoire. Houdini was also officially recognized as the first person to ever make a controlled flight in Australia by the Australian Aerial League. Harry Houdini, the great magician and handcuff king, arrives at Digger's Rest, 30 miles from Melbourne, with his international brigade, his American wife, car, and chauffeur, Brassic, his French mechanic, and French Wazen biplane, purchased through a German aviator in Germany to make history in Australia. His diary records, On my first trial flight, just after getting off the ground, I quickly flopped back to Earth. I smashed machine and broke propeller all to... It is interesting to note that this box kite type airplane evolved from the box kite gliders built and flown by Hargrave of Sydney, Australia in 1893 and became a model for French airplanes for many years. A trophy was presented to Houdini for Australia's first airplane flight. Just a few years later, on July 17, 1913, Houdini's mother, Cecilia Weiss, died after suffering a stroke. When news of her death reached Houdini, who was performing in Copenhagen, he fainted. It took Houdini several days to make it back to New York. The family delayed burial against Jewish custom just so Houdini could have one last look at his mother. Every day for a year he visited his mother's grave and every night at 15 minutes past midnight, the instant of her death. He lay flat on the ground, his arms embracing her grave, his face pressed close to the earth. There, he talked to her, begging her to let him know her last words. The great Harry Houdini, magician, handcuff king, jailbreaker, escape artist, daredevil, was painfully bound by his mother's death. When we come back, can Houdini escape the grasp of depression? This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and for all that we do, by the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Stories about everything, and in that last segment we heard about how Houdini was the 25th person to fly in the air just years after the Wright brothers did. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to David McCullough for the hour talking about the Wright brothers, his terrific new book, The Wright Brothers, or not so new, but new if you haven't read it, and you can hear the whole story at Our American Network. Dot org. Just type the Wright Brothers in there, and you'll hear David McCullough walk us through, and all of us through, one of the great stories of American life. And now we return and continue with the epic tale of the great Harry Houdini, where he was suffering greatly over the loss of his mother. After the death of his mother, the great Houdini was in the throes of depression. The story from here usually goes that after his mother died, Houdini attended seances in the hopes to communicate with her. 
and that all he found was fraud. He then set out to expose fraudulent mediums and launched into a new wave of his career as an anti-spiritualism crusader and debunker. It's a good story. The trouble is, it's just not true. The notion that his mother's death led directly to his anti-spiritualism crusade has grown to become one of the most popular Houdini myths. It would be 10 years before Houdini unmasked his first medium. The true genesis of Houdini's anti-spiritualism crusade is rooted in his friendship with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author and creator of Sherlock Holmes. After World War I, spiritualism became extremely popular. Arthur Conan Doyle, who lost his son in the war, became a passionate champion of the movement. Serpents and spiders, tail of a rat, call in the spirits wherever they're at. Although Houdini insisted that spiritualist mediums employed trickery, Doyle became convinced that Houdini himself possessed supernatural powers. Here's the voice of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle from a recording in 1930 where he describes his view of spiritualism. In 1887, some curious psychic experiences came my way. And especially, I was impressed by the fact of telepathy, which I proved for myself by experiments with a friend. The question then arose, if two incarnate minds could communicate, is it possible for a discarnate one to communicate with one that is still in the body? For more than 20 years, I examined the evidence and came finally to the conclusion beyond all doubt that such communication was possible. I could give hundreds of illustrations to prove my point. But I can only refer you to the literature of the subject. The full importance of the matter did not come home to me until the war, when all the world was asking, where are our dead boys? And getting such unsatisfactory answers, both from the churches and from science. Then it was that my wife and I felt that our knowledge on the subject was of enormous importance, and that we could answer this universal question. While on the beach one day, Sir Arthur informed Houdini that his wife, Lady Doyle, had developed the power of mediumship herself and was sensing that Houdini's deceased mother wished to communicate with him. Privately, Bess Houdini had warned her husband that Lady Doyle had been peppering her with questions about his relationship with his mother just the day before. Nevertheless, Houdini agreed to the seance. Strap on a table. It's time to respond. Send us a message from somewhere beyond. During the seance, Houdini's mother appeared to return through automatic writing, a process in which Lady Doyle transcribed words from beyond onto a notepad. Immediately, Houdini could see problems. The pages were in English, a language his mother did not speak. She also made the sign of a cross on the top of the first page. Not something you would expect from the wife of a rabbi. But Houdini concealed his doubts and thanked the Doyles for their seance. Sir Arthur told the press that Houdini had been converted to the religion of spiritualism. Harry Houdini countered publicly that he had not been converted and that he was more skeptical than ever. This raised the question of whether Houdini thought the Doyles were frauds. The public exchange put a strain on the friendship and Harry Houdini began to incorporate the debunking of spiritualism into his stage performances. There are those who would have you believe that they can foresee the future, heal wounds, talk to the dead. Talk to the dead. 
I've met hundreds of them. Table tappers, trumpet blowers, ectoplasmic saints. They'd rather we exercise our fantasies than our brains. I've invested years reaching across those psychic gulfs. You'd think I wouldn't if I could. I ache to believe. I wanted to talk to one single soul. How hard could that be? She died with one thought on her lips. For me. There are 20,000 medians practicing today, and none have spoken those words. And I warrant for my $10,000 reward, two-thirds of them have tried. If spirits are genuine, you think they'd warn us? There'd have been no passengers on the Titanic. There'd have been no deaths in the San Francisco quake. If ghosts, if ghosts can inhabit any self-proclaimed Madame Zaza, why not the lower forms of life? Why doesn't your, your poodle whisper warnings about the next train wreck? Or your, your Persian for warn or murder? Why? Animals don't have bank accounts. Here again is magician Joshua Jay with his perspective on Houdini's quest to challenge spiritualism. So, you're Houdini. By this time, you've achieved more fame than probably was ever even thought possible for a magician. He's one of the most famous figures alive, but something's happened. He's getting older, right? He's famous for being a dashing, young immigrant magician, making these escapes with young assistants, showing off the physicality of his body, but now he's bordering 50 years old. He's not quite as quick on his feet, and he realizes that the last part of his career will not be as dynamic physically as the first part. So what do you do? Where do you go from here? It's the same question great actors and great singers ask when they achieve so much, but now have to reinvent themselves. Well, if you're Houdini, you go on a crusade against an emerging religion, spiritualism. And I call spiritualism a religion on purpose. It's looked at today as a cult or sort of a phase in history. But at that time period, people believed in spiritualism as a faith. And he was very close to his mother, as I've told you. When she died, he wanted more than anything, like all of us do when we lose somebody, to get in contact with her. And there was a particular incident in which he was told that he would, and he was told he had made contact with his mother. And it was a scam. He realized very quickly that the same techniques he was using to deceive the public, they were using to deceive people for real. And he went on a crusade against spiritualism. When we return, the infamous death of the great Harry Houdini, plus the only known audio recording of his voice in existence. This is Our American Stories. Give us a hint by ringing a bell. 
And we continue with the closing segment on the life of the great Harry Houdini. And now we hear from famous magicians of our time about the life of this epic entertainer. But first, we hear the voice of the escape master himself. On October 29th, 1914, the audio was recorded on an Edison wax cylinder and is now the only known vocal recording of Harry Houdini to exist. The recording captures Harry Houdini delivering an introduction to his Chinese water torture cell escape. The audio allows us to hear Houdini's measured cadence and careful enunciation. street performer and magician David Blaine tells the story of a befriended librarian at an early age who introduced him to a book that would set the course for his highly successful career in magic. It was called The Secrets of Houdini. You know, at the age of five, when you see a man chained up sideways to the side of a building, a straitjacket looking really scary, you don't forget that. And I started looking through the book and I started seeing all these amazing things that he was doing. And what I liked about what he was doing is you could very easily tell from the pictures that he was doing things that were real. So it wasn't like an illusion or a magic trick, even though he employed that into what he did. But what the guy was doing was clearly real and physical and dangerous. And it was the things that I think are amazing to this day. Chris Angel is another highly successful and popular magician and illusionist who was directly influenced by the great Harry Houdini. He was more than a magician or an escape artist. He was a provocateur. He was somebody who was popular culture. He was, by all means, the biggest star of his era. And um, I think part of his success came because he understood what the public wanted and even more so understood how to create that interest. I always said that if you cut Houdini with a knife, blood wouldn't come out. Press would. He was a master at that. And uh, 
that inspired me. Magician, illusionist, and comedian Penn Jillette is famous for his work as half of Penn & Teller. There's a fascinating thing about Houdini, uh, deeply fascinating, in that I can't think. Try to maybe sort of put Bob Dylan in this category, uh, but it's very hard to think. You can maybe sort of try to try to sneak in Picasso, try to sneak in Miles Davis, but trying to find someone who in their career made a philosophical or moral change while they were famous. Um, someone who has come out and redefined themselves in a moral way. Houdini became hugely famous as an escape artist, saying to a nation of immigrants, a man born in Budapest, and then standing. I mean, there's a picture of Houdini in, in Times Square hanging upside down in a straitjacket with a whole sea of men in hats. The picture makes me cry every time. And then Houdini's publicity statement, <laughs> I defy the jails of the world to hold me. I mean, can you imagine a more heavy, more, I mean, t- from a rabbi's son from Budapest. I mean, is there anything more uh, uh, purely American than that? He gets to be a superstar as an escape artist. He gets himself into dictionaries as an escape artist. We look back on the 20th century in 100 years and look at um, entertainment. The only two people in the running for being remembered in the 20th century are Elvis Presley and Houdini. And as time goes on, Houdini's winning. When Harry Houdini and his entourage arrived at the Garrick Theater in Detroit, Michigan on October 24th, 1926, he was running a fever. Two days earlier, Houdini had been resting in his dressing room prior to a show in Montreal when a college student named J. Gordon Whitehead approached him. It's difficult to determine exactly what happened from here, as accounts from eyewitnesses are slightly conflicting. However, the general story seems to be that Whitehead asked Houdini if the claim that he could withstand any punch to the abdomen had any truth to it. Houdini assured him that it was true and gave him permission to see for himself. Whitehead immediately took several jabs at Houdini's midsection while the magician supposedly didn't have a chance to prepare for the blows from over-exuberant J. Gordon Whitehead. The punches inflicted more pain than Houdini anticipated, yet he insisted that the evening's scheduled performance must go on. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as you read in the newspapers this morning, Houdini has been challenged to liberate himself from a steel straitjacket. He began the performance with several vanishing acts, culminating with making a woman disappear and conjuring a flower shrub in her place. He made it through the first act, but his condition worsened and he was forced to finish the show. Houdini finally gave in and agreed to go to Grace Hospital in Detroit to have an emergency appendectomy. Doctors performed the surgery, but the damage was already done. Harry Houdini held on for about a week at Grace Hospital, but finally succumbed on October 31st, 1926. He was 52 years old. Which is where our story ends, as it began, on the night of October 31st, 1936, on the rooftop of the Nickenbacher Hotel in Hollywood, California, 10 years to the day after he died. The great Houdini made a pact with his wife, Bess, that he would make every attempt to communicate with her as a spirit from beyond the grave after he was dead. So, 
Every year on Halloween, the widow of Harry Houdini held a seance for him the night of his departure for the next 10 years without ever making contact. In this, the 10th and final seance, gold invitations were sent to 300 guests, reporters, and Hollywood elite. Lights as far away as New York were dimmed, and one minute of silence was observed before the ceremony reached its climax at the final plea for the great Harry Houdini to reveal himself to the world. was in. The great Houdini had made his greatest escape. From the shackles that bound him to this world, to that inevitable escape that we all make, the story of the great Harry Houdini will live on forever. This is our American Stories. And great job as always, and that's Jesse Edwards and my goodness, when he hits it good, he hits it out of the park. And just listening to that, what a stunt Harry Houdini created for all those liars and all those false prophets. He exposed them, even in his grave, setting them up for the kill. A master at the big event. And by the way, what an American story. Born in 1894, Budapest, Hungary, son of a rabbi, a Jew, and outsiders, outsiders in his new country. And he becomes the biggest star there ever was. And again, it was pointed out early. He didn't play someone else like the Valentinos of the early movie world. Houdini played himself to the end. Provocateur. And he understood, as one person said, what the public wanted. The life of Harry Houdini. What a story. Here on Our American Stories. And to listen to all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to talk about everything here on this show, from business to history, from sports to the arts, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll take a listen. We'll put it together, produce it, and you'll be hearing your stories, your own stories on the air. They're some of our favorites. The American people can write and talk, and my goodness, what stories you've already given us. What's coming up next is an intersection of two of our favorite subjects, innovation and music. And you're about to hear the story of the multi-track recording. It spawned an epic rivalry between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Change music as we know it. Here's Greg Hengler with the rest of the story. I, I love the colorful clothes she wears And the way the sunlight plays upon her hair In the 60s, multi-track recording began to redefine what music could be and turn the studio into a sonic laboratory. I'm picking up vibrations. Here's Ringo Starr. It was like a strange place full of like crazy scientists, electricians, madmen. Here's music producer Don Was. Just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. 90 hours working on one song. Everyone thought that was insanity. Here's music historian Chuck Granada and the founder of the band Boston, Tom Scholes. In 1976, a band named Boston had a hit single called More Than a Feeling. What no one knew was that Boston really wasn't a band at all. Boston was the result of me tinkering in a basement with my multi-track recording studio. It was a really personal endeavor. I work in my own space, my own time, put a rhythm guitar part on, and then another one, and then a bass track, keyboards. Then I uh, called Brad Delp to see if he wanted to sing the vocals, which thankfully he did. So I basically threw a band together to be able to play the songs live. Not only didn't the record company, uh, not only were they not aware that I was making the record in my basement, but they never became aware that the record that they were selling millions of copies of was made in a basement. Multitracking allowed you to put music together and change it. And the reason it was cool is because this gave you a, basically a whole new medium. At one point, Someone explained to me, older than I was, that this whole process of recording on uh, multi-track recorders was invented by this guy, Les Paul. And I said, well, what a coincidence. There's a guitar that, that's named a Les Paul. And he says, yeah, there's a good reason for that. Les Paul not only designed some guitars that made new and incredible sounds, but had this vision for recording studios. He invented multi-track recording. That, that, that changed everything. Here's Ringo Starr. In 
Here's Eric Clapton. The records I heard by Les Paul and Mary Ford in the 50s, I was even aware then that without any knowledge of, um, of recording techniques that they were doing something revolutionary. Uh, we turn the tape machines on. They're just a standard, regular uh, Ampex tape machine. Mm -hmm. As I recall, there are uh, about a dozen or 20 voices come in there. Now, where, who's the voices? That's Mary. You mean they're all Mary's voices? Mm -hmm. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Now I'll add a tenor part to that. All right. Wait a minute. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Well, how long can this go on without getting awful confused in your head? <laughs> it's being, pretty confused. Being cued by your husband. <laughs> Well, uh, would you like to hear the third part? Yes. Somewhere there's music, Here's Jeff Beck. Les Paul, I mean, he made sounds no one had ever heard before. I remember my mum saying that you shouldn't listen to this music, it's fake. She said, it's one guy tricking us. So I said, that's it, that's, me. that's the music for me. <laughs> because it was enabled me to be rebellious, you know, as well. And I enjoyed the sound. I don't think you can beat that. I mean, the way that those records sound is it's still exciting. Before magnetic tape, an artist would come into the studio and they would be recorded live. What they would do is literally etch the grooves into the disc as the session was being recorded. You had to start from the beginning and go to the end. If you made any mistakes, too bad, or you had to start over. Magnetic tape, it just changed music completely. It gave you the possibility to record in fidelity that was better than anyone had ever even come close to, so you could make a more accurate document. At the same time, it lets you manipulate sound so it didn't sound lifelike at all because now you could edit, you could overdub, you could cut and splice. Once the technology came out, it very quickly became the standard format. And when we come back, we continue this remarkable story, this tale of innovation and music and competition. Competition is a vital part of this story. The story of the multi-track recording continues here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the multi-track music revolution. And by the way, I'm a huge music fan, and there's some stuff. Well, I'm just writing down notes to myself, and I'm going to be going back to listen to some of my favorite records now and listen a whole lot differently. Let's return to this story and to Greg Hengler. Okay, wouldn't it be nice take five? Recalling his 1960s game of one-upmanship with the Beach Boys' so-called rivals, the Beatles, Brian Wilson said, Rubber Soul inspired pet sounds, which inspired Sgt. Pepper's. Here's music producer Don Was and music historian Chuck Granato. I think the kind of friendly competition between the Beatles and the Beach Boys really advanced the cause of popular music. Brian Wilson heard Rubber Soul and understood that there was a whole other place where you could take rock and roll. That, that, that was an elevated musical consciousness in play. Brian was listening to what the Beatles were doing in the studio, and he was completely knocked out. Hearing that made him realize that he had to up the ante on his next album, which was Pet Sounds. No, it's gonna make it that much better when we can say goodnight and stay told me that he and Carl used to pray before each session, that they would make a record that would be warmer and more inspirational than Rubber Soul. None of those big pickups, blah, 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 just, uh, just like, uh, doo-doo, doo-doo. Brian pre-imagined everything that he did. He heard all of the vocal parts, all of the instrumental parts, even before anyone set foot in the studio. Brian was the mastermind. I'd like to start it out now, this time, with the uh, organ and the Fender bass. And then uh, the bongos will come in the second half like everything else. All right, here we go. Ironically, the only song from the Pet Sound Sessions that reached number one was recorded after the album was released. And it was the result of an unprecedented number of hours in the studio. Here's Glenn Campbell. Time was nothing to Brian Wilson. I remember we all got to sit there for about three and a half hours when he was running his finger up that thing going. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. I'm picking up Just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. When he made good vibrations, Brian reportedly spent 90 hours recording it. Everyone thought that was insanity, you know, like he's gone mad. He spent 90 hours working on one song. You know, I mean, today that's nothing. Here's Beach Boys drummer Hal Blaine and bassist Carol Kay. The session that we did on Good Vibrations was not one session. It was many, many, many sessions. Take after take after take. My fingers were almost bleeding, you know. It's like, come on, Brian, fade us out, fade us out. I don't know where, but you sent me there.
Different vocal parts created that wonderful celestial resonance, overdub, over overdub, over overdub, until, on God only knows, he ended up with seven tracks of vocal overdubs, and that's how come you hear this heavenly choir. Here's Paul McCartney. We loved the Beach Boys, and it, it was a bit of a competition across the pond. And when they did Pet Sounds, I played it to everyone. I said, oh, "Listen, listen to what they're doing here, you know." So we did Sergeant Pepper. Here's Ringo Starr. What happened to us was that while we were touring, we were regressing as musicians because the noise of the audience was louder than the band. I'm watching the feet, I'm watching their asses, I'm watching the bobbing heads. Ooh, oh, it's that part. To stay in some sort of time. Beatles producer George Martin. The Beatles achieved a quantum leap when they stopped touring. That gave us an opportunity which we hadn't had before. We no longer were under pressure to complete a song within a day or two days. We could spend as much time as we liked on it. The boundaries were being moved so far forward from the early mono days. Now we were asking for things like a symphony orchestra for a day in the life. You know, lunatics are taking over the asylum. Many of John's songs, A Day in the Life began quite simply, based on the odd newspaper cutting. Paul had written a scrap of a song. Woke up, fell out of bed, you know the one. But when we laid down the track, Paul came up with the idea of a giant crescendo, a kind of immense musical orgasm. Don't 
Listen to the man next to you, I said to the orchestra. Make your own way up this sliding passage. And if you're playing the same note as your companion, you're playing the wrong one. Well, the orchestra hooted with laughter. All their lives they'd tried to play as one man, and it only took a few minutes for the Beatles to change all that. We were taking so long making Sgt. Pepper. I remember in one of the musical papers, they said, oh, the Beatles have dried up. And we were like, <coughs> no, we haven't. Here's Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. We were on the road driving to a gig in an old Zephyr 4 when Sergeant Pepper was played for the first time on the radio. And I remember we pulled off into a lay-by and sat there and listened to the whole thing from start to finish. And I remember we just looked at each other and went, hey, that's just... Suddenly, here was an album that was like a theatrical construction, but it was also rooted in songs that were about all our hopes and fears. And so, in, in that sense... That album opened Pandora's box for everybody. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story. Great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And my goodness, what we learned here, as always, in Our American Stories is that intersection of competition, free markets, and intellectual property rights. And my goodness, without all three of those things, we are learning here we wouldn't have the rich cultural and artistic tradition we have here in this great country. The story of the multi-track recording revolution here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. Sports, history, arts, the culture, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. We'll put them up on the air, and we're doing that just right now. And by the way, some of these stories are beautiful. Some of these stories are hard. Some are both, and I think this one is. And this one comes to us from one of our listeners in Des Moines, Iowa and at the home of the mighty WHO, one of the great heritage signals in this country. And it comes from Joy Neal Kidney. In World War II, her grandmother sent five sons to war. Only two, only two came home. Here, Joy shares how her family has honored these men. Neglected gravestones over Memorial Day. No flowers, no one to remember. This would never happen in our family, so I thought. Growing up, I knew that my mother's five brothers had served in World War II and that the three youngest had lost their lives. Their sepia-toned photographs, all in uniform, were a familiar part of our home. 
Those same pictures posed for decades on the chest of drawers in Grandma's house. I grew up with women who observed every decoration day, as it was called then. I could have asked for details about those young brothers, but knew the answers would bring tears, so I didn't. In fact, Memorial Day was a wonderful time for me as a child, as it meant an outing to the big town of Perry for lunch and shopping with Grandma, Mom, Sis Gloria, and Aunt Darlene. Either Mom or Darlene would pick up the other, both toting pails of pink peonies, coral bells, and blue iris from their own gardens. Carried in the trunk of the car, these spring blossoms were for the cemeteries. We'd drive the dusty gravel roads of Madison County, then the hills of Highway 25 to Grandma's house in Guthrie Center, where she would be waiting with her best flowers, including what she called little yellow buttons. Grandma's parents and some of her siblings are buried there at the Guthrie Cemetery, so we'd leave flowers there first to remember them before heading east to Panther Corner. Perry is a few miles north of where the old Panther store used to stand. We'd skirt Perry's downtown toward our main mission, Violet Hill Cemetery in the northeast corner of town. Grandma's husband is buried there and their three sons who were lost in the war. Or so I thought. The Wilson Stones are in the east section with stately evergreens. We three generations would solemnly deliver the flowers from the car to the Wilson Stones. Everything seemed hushed. Before the four names, Dale, Daniel, Claiborne J., and Clay Wilson, we'd secure metal vases with wires Mom had cut from coat hangers. Then we'd fill them with our pastel bouquets. How nice they look, Grandma would mention. I remember her shedding tears there only once. The mood lightened on the drive toward downtown. I don't remember what the grown-ups ate, but we young sisters were treated to hamburgers and Cokes in a real cafe east of the library. Then shopping and visiting. For young girls from an Iowa farm near the small town of Dexter, this day was a yearly treat. When it was time to start back home, we'd always drive by the old Wilson acreage, a mile south on 16th Street. Grandma and her daughters always wanted to see how it looked after so many years, and how much the trees had grown that they had planted in the 1940s. Through the decades, different family members would make that annual Memorial Day trip to Perry with Grandma. One or two of Aunt Darlene's sons went along, and later on, even my own young son. Grandma died in 1987, leaving a cedar chest full of old postcards, letters, pictures, and the terrible telegrams. After Mom and Aunt Darlene relived the war by reading through them, they shared them with me. I realized for the very first time that only their youngest brother, Junior, is buried in the Perry Cemetery. Danny Wilson, a P-38 pilot who was killed in action in Austria, is buried in France. Dale Wilson, the co-pilot on a B-25, was lost off the coast of New Guinea with his crew. Only God knows where their remains lie. I was determined that when Mom and Aunt Darlene, who is Dale's twin, 
got to the place that they could no longer make the trip to Perry to remember their brothers and parents for Memorial Day, I'd always get it done. So I thought. My health got to the place where I could no longer make the trip. One day, my husband and I stopped by just to see the stones once more. I realized that because Dale's official date of death is listed as 1946, months after the war ended, no one would understand that he'd been a war casualty. A few additions to all three stones would tell more of the story of what this one family had endured. Mom and Darlene agreed, and the information was added. One stone commemorates Dale and Danny, making clear that they were both killed in action. The center stone marks the grave of Junior, whose P-40 exploded in formation training in Texas in August 1945 at the very end of the war. The brothers were aged 22, 21, and 20. Their father, Clabe, died next year of a stroke and a broken heart, surely another casualty of the war. Even though no family members have recently remembered the Wilsons for Memorial Day, the price that our freedoms cost this one Dallas County family must never be forgotten. And it's not forgotten here, Joy. And thanks for that piece. And Danny, Dale, and Junior, the sacrifices won't be forgotten. And here in our American stories, we don't forget. That's what we do here. As often as we can, bring back history to life. Because it's still alive, folks, and it matters. These stories matter. You know, it brings to mind the Sullivan brothers. I've been reading about them recently. All five boys in that family died in World War II. They were all on the same ship, the USS Juno. And on November 13, 1942, it was torpedoed down off the coast of the Solomon Islands by a Japanese destroyer. 687 sailors on board, 100 went into the water. Only 10 survived the elements and shark attacks. And it also brings to mind a personal story, my own family story. A story my mom told me, and I have her brother's Purple Heart. And boy, the the way they printed out Purple Hearts in World War II. It was the summer of 44, and my mom remembered a black government car pulling up to her apartment building in West New York, New Jersey. The men stepped out of the car and walked up the stairs. A dozen or so families lived in that building, and several had loved ones who'd volunteer to fight. Her brother John was one of them. He signed up. When he was 18, and he paratrooped behind enemy lines right around the time of D-Day. She told me she felt terrible, praying that it would be someone else's door those men knocked on. And then she heard the footsteps stop in front of her door. She was 13. She told me she never heard her mom cry so hard when those men knocked on that door. Her mom didn't need to open it to comprehend the news. Her dad barely cried but she never again saw him enjoy his life. He'd lost not just his son, but his only son, my mom told me. He'd lost his bloodline. And so here in our American stories, we celebrate the fallen soldiers, and we honor their sacrifices and all of the men and women serving our country in uniform here and abroad. This is our American stories, Joy Neal Kidney's family story. So many other family stories, families whose 
Sons, daughters, loved ones, fathers, husbands paid the ultimate price. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story comes from Michael Lella, who shared his dad's incredible story at fee.org, that's F-E-E.org, the terrific website of the Foundation for Economic Education, and he graciously recorded it for us. If you were 17 and growing up in Milan, Italy in 1943, More than likely, you would have been forced, indoctrinated, and brainwashed into fascism. The dictator of Italy responsible for it, Benito Mussolini, had been in power since 1922. My dad was born in 1926. The voice and image of Il Duce, as Italians were obliged to call Mussolini, were ubiquitous in Italy at the time. Mussolini would ultimately drag the country into the Second World War on the side of Germany's Adolf Hitler. My father is now 92 and lives an hour north of Milan. His name is Pino Lella. If you had to pick a time to be a teenager in Milan, 1943 would have been the worst of choices. In June, as my dad was nearing his 17th birthday, the British began an intensive six-month bombing campaign. It left a third of the city's population homeless, about 400,000 people. My father and his younger brother, my uncle Mimo, narrowly escaped death one night following the bombing of a movie theater. They were there to see you were never lovelier with Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth, and they witnessed many casualties. My grandfather, Michele, in an effort to keep his boys from becoming victims of the continued bombing, sent my father and uncle to a Catholic boys' school. They were familiar with this school because it was there that they had learned to ski and love the mountains as children. The school was located high in the Alps, above Lake Como, not far from the Swiss border. It was called Casa Alpina, and it was run by a very courageous priest by the name of Father Luigi Ray. Being the oldest of the boys, my dad was singled out by Father Ray and trained to become an alpine guide. At first, my father knew nothing of the Nazi brutality against Jews and others. In fact, he had learned to respect the Nazi high command, many of whom were customers of his family's leather goods store in Milan. They had occupied Milan as brothers in arms to defend Milan from the British bombing. But my dad became brutally aware of the Nazi crimes in September of 1943 when word came of 52 prominent Jews being rounded up by the Nazis and executed in the village of Mena on Lago Maggiore. Their bodies were thrown into the lake for the local citizens to see. It was then that many Italians rebelled and began hiding and protecting their Jewish-Italian friends. 
they formed an underground railroad, a network of escape routes similar to the one that was developed to save American slaves before and during America's Civil War. One of the network routes led through to Casalpina. This was where their Lello brothers were sent to wait out the bombing of Milan. For nine harrowing months while at Casalpina, from the fall of 1943 through June of 1944, the month of his 18th birthday, my father guided many Jewish refugees across the Alps into neutral Switzerland to escape Italy. He risked his life evading Nazi patrols, surviving avalanches and grenade attacks. He was robbed by bandits disguising themselves as anti-fascist partisans. He often carried the weak and the elderly on his back in the dead of winter over the top of the Alps, some of the world's most rugged mountain terrain. Some had embarked on this journey with my father in such a way that they wore street shoes, not exactly hiking gear for the Alps in below zero temperatures. At the time, my dad simply did what he was told to do and thought little of it. Father Ray instructed him to take people to safety, and so he did it. He knew it was dangerous, of course, but even to this day, he doesn't think of what he did as heroic. He had faith in doing the right thing, and such a high regard for Father Ray that he would have done anything for him. The missions gave him an identity, a meaningful purpose, and an opportunity to lead. And like many 17-year-olds with reckless abandon, he thrived on the excitement and adventure of it all, at least while it lasted. In June of 1944, my father turned 18, the age at which young Italians were drafted by the state into the military. He had two choices. He could join Mussolini's fascist army and quite likely end up on the Russian front. His other option was to conscript with the German army. His aunt and uncle had connections that might land him a secure and hopefully a safer job in the organization Todd. This was the armament and the construction division of the Third Reich. For his safety, but against his wishes, Pino's father and mother talked him into enlisting in the German army. Dad reluctantly donned the military uniform with a Nazi swastika. What happened next was almost unbelievable. Through a series of extraordinary circumstances, including his wounding during an Allied bombing raid, my father was ordered back to Milan to convalesce for two weeks. Then, with a little help from family and his ability to speak French and drive a car, he landed a position as the personal driver and confidant for one of Hitler's most mysterious officers in the German high command. He was a man so powerful in Italy that he responded directly, personally, and only to Adolf Hitler. His name was General Hans Lairs, the plenipotentiary of the Italian sector for organization taught. To Pino's aunt and uncle, his assignment as a driver for such a powerful figure was a serendipitous opportunity of a lifetime. It could help change the direction of the war. They understood the importance of it because they were already working in secret for the Allies and the Italian resistance. The kind of information their nephew would now have access to could be critical for the fight against the Germans. My father, still a teenager, as a new and personal driver for this top Nazi commander, became a spy 
known to the Allies as the Observer. For the last year of the war, while driving General Lairs around northern Italy, my dad learned the locations of tank traps, landmines, ammunition tunnels, and every fortification between Florence and Milan. He observed the Germans' main defensive positions. He secretly documented troop movements. He took notes and photos. And he fed mounds of that crucial information to the Allies by using Uncle Albert's shortwave OSS radio. More than once, my father was nearly caught, which would likely have led to his torture and execution. But he kept the trust of an unwitting General Layers. My dad personally witnessed the Nazi persecution of Jews, as well as the working to death of slaves from many faiths and nationalities in work camps, hoping and dreaming that one day he could testify against those responsible. At midnight on April 24, 1945, upon orders from the resistance, my father single-handedly arrested General Hans Lairs and delivered him to the American command, which was led by 5th U.S. Army Major Frank Nabel. For the next five days, he became Major Nabel's personal guide and translator, at last discarding his uniform and the Nazi swastika. On April 28th, Pino and Major Nabel witness a hideous moment in Italian history the public desecration of Mussolini's body in Piazzale Loreto amid the hysteria and fanaticism of the frenzied Italian mobs. Hitler killed himself in Berlin two days later. With the deaths of the two fascist dictators, my father thought he was finished with the war. But in fact, the war wasn't quite finished with him. In early May, the famous Brenner Pass through the Alps was the most dangerous corner of Europe. The German army was retreating from Italy through the pass into Austria. Thousands of Nazi troops who refused to surrender were on the run, being chased down and cut off by Italian resistance fighters and the U.S. Army. In the midst of this, my father was asked if he would do America a favor and accept the final mission. The Americans asked my dad to be a guide one last time, leading one final escape from Italy. His mission was to drive an important, high-ranking Nazi from American custody to the Austrian border, where he could safely be interrogated for the intelligence he possessed about Hitler's Reich. Who was this top general my dad was enlisted to escort to safety? None other than the very man he had driven for, the very man he had arrested and turned over to the Allies just weeks before, General Hans Lairs. Distraught and tormented over the events of the last week of the war, my father accepted that final mission. You can only imagine the conversation in the car between my dad and General Lairs. By the evening of that same day, May 3rd, 1945, my dad delivered General Layers to the Americans awaiting for him on the Austrian border. That final escort ended my father's involvement in World War II. But like many of that greatest generation, the experience and the weeks preceding the war's end continued to haunt him for the rest of his life. And to hear the rest of Pino Lella's remarkable story, pick up Mark Sullivan's best-selling book about him, Beneath a Scarlet Sky. 
and thanks to the son, Michael, again, who shared his dad's incredible story at fee.org. Great job, as always, on this Alex and Joey. Michael's story, his dad's story, a great World War II story here on Our American Stories. <laughs>